Today I wanted to look into uh, a, a, just this kind of a topical study, may take us a little bit inside of what we were doing before, but uh, the mountains of Scripture, have you ever thought about the mountains of Scripture? Interesting, as you study from this approach, there's over, well over 550 references to mountains in the Scripture, okay? Um, and to some degree, we might say that there is a symbolism there. In other words, mountains do represent something uh, to us. If you turn to Psalm 36, let's just look at a few verses here to kind of get a, um, a look at how the psalmist uh, used this. Several in Psalms here, one in Proverbs. But Psalm 36 and verse 6. Psalm 36 Appreciate you turning there. Psalm 36 and verse 6. The psalmist says, Thy righteousness is like the great mountains. Thy righteousness is like the great mountains. So there's something about the mountain that's symbolic of or that uh, he's using as an illustration of the righteousness of God, whether he's talking about um, their greatness, uh, their stability, their height. Uh, what? Just humanly speaking, okay, and, and this is pretty universal here, when you, uh, when you look at a mountain, whether it's a picture of a mountain or especially you, you are, are driving, say, uh, to, the, uh, to the Rockies or whatever, and you're still miles off, what strikes you about a mountain? What, what kind of impresses itself? What word comes to mind? Sandy? Huge. Good. Good. What else? Good. What'd you say? Say it again. Justing? Majestic. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Fred says, having grown up in Colorado, he thinks of the thin air. Yes, okay. So we got the majestic and the thin air. I'm not sure how we can tie that in, but um, all right. What else? Yeah, Carla. Beauty, there certainly is a beauty there. Um, uh, I would even use the word awe, right? It's something, um, when we say, uh, what was your word, Sandy, again? Huge. It's so huge. It's so massive compared to our little human frame. It, it's, it's kind of overwhelming. So we stand in awe. So you could see where it's certain, we would use it as an illustration. We recognize that it's not just a rock, but, uh, boy, there's something about that rock that even demonstrates something of the power of God. Uh, when the Bible says that, you know, he has the mountains in his hands or whatever it is, you know, that, that he created these things. And, uh, um, and so here he says, thy righteousness is like the great mountains. In, in over just uh, 10 psalms there to Psalm 46, Psalm 46 and verse number 2 Psalm 46, verse 2, he says, God is our refuge, verse number 1, our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, will not we fear, though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea? Now, that's a mental picture, right? You go, oh, can you imagine? I mean, a mountain being carried into the midst of the sea? That would be pretty terrifying <laughs> if I had to watch that happen. But even if that happened, I wouldn't fear. Okay, see the, the analogy that he's giving. Um, the very next verse, he says, Though the waters thereof 
roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. In Psalm 90, uh, verse number two, I just want to throw out a, a sort of a fun side thought here to you. Psalm 90, and verse number two, and this is following on, of course, verse one, where he says, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Now, describing this, he says in verse two, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Have you ever wondered when the mountains were formed? Have you ever questioned maybe whether the mountains were an effect of the flood? I've certainly thought that. Uh, and there may be some degree to which, uh, to which they were affected or more were made. But it does to me seem from the text of Scripture that in the beginning, he formed mountains, okay? So I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say that it was a flat ball uh, with you know, dirt and water and then during the shift of the tectonic plates that all of the mountains came to be necessarily, though that's an interesting um, thought to think and maybe there was some development there as well. Um, but verse, uh, verse, Psalm 97, Psalm 97 verse 5 Again, using the mountain in the illustration, he says, The hills, same word as the word for mountains, melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. Mountains melted like wax. Wow, what would that be like? Psalm 125 and verse 2, he said, As the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord is round about his people from henceforth forever. Now, uh, Proverbs one verse here, and kind of uh, uh, as we, I just mentioned here a minute ago, Proverbs 8 and verse 25, seeming to confirm the idea that mountains in some way, some fashion, were present from the beginning. Proverbs 8 verse 25, wisdom says, before the mountains were settled, before the hills was I brought forth. So uh, this is just a few of the references to scripture, and of course there is some illustrative, maybe I should use it, say it that way, there's some illustrative use to mountains. Though, uh, I'm, I'm one that really likes, wants to be careful of um, over-symbolizing things and, um, and drawing mystical applications off of things that are just what they are, okay? Um, and so what I mean is when we say uh, Moses went up into the mountain for the law. We go, oh, there is kind of, that's interesting. He goes up to God, just like we want to go up to God and came down to the people. Okay, all right, I see that. But at the same time, you know why he went up the mountain? Because that's what you do on a mountain, right? You can't go down a mountain when you're going up the mountain. Anyway, it just kind of is what it is. So um, you say, well, why? there's so many references to to mountains in the scripture. You know why that is? Because there was a lot of mountains. Okay, let me show you this real quick. I hope you can see this. It sounds like it's shut off here. Turn it back on. Um, And I'll pull it in here for you in just a minute. But just to give you kind of a quick look of the topography (coughs) of Israel... Give it just a second here to brighten up. Looks like it was moved a little bit. 
And All right, you can see here, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to expand this here in just a moment, but you see over here on the right side of the screen, this is the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. So this stretch of land right here is Israel, essentially. Now you remember that two and a half tribes also settled on this side right here. Okay, but I'm just going to kind of uh, highlight. I want to take a, <clears throat> a long view. If I were to highlight this area right here. So I put a square around from the Sea of Galilee down below the Dead Sea <clears throat> to the west there to, toward the Mediterranean. And then we get a, uh, a 3D look of it. There, now you can see this. Let me sh pull this in. Uh, no, it's not. Here we go. Um, let me see if I can turn that a little bit. Well, let me go to the other one. Here we go. Oops. So you can kind of see <clears throat> from the Dead Sea up to the Sea of Galilee, of course, that makes it look like a hop, skip, and a jump. And of course, there was miles in there. But you see, <clears throat> especially to the east, but <clears throat> to the west... <clears throat> Almost all along the, the Jordan River there, uh, up to the Sea of Galilee, uh, as you're going in between the river and the Mediterranean Sea, there's mountains. Okay? So there's a lot of mountains right there. In fact, we talk about, I want to show you this one, it's just kind of fun to look at. <clears throat> we talk about the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. Well, which mount? Well, uh, we don't know exactly which mount, but here's the Sea of Galilee. All right? And... Uh, you can kind of see the elevation there. That's a good question. Let me see. Mount, I looked at a picture. Um, I want to say Mount Hermon. They wouldn't be very tall. Um, Mount Everest, I want to say, is in the upper 20s. And I want to say Mount Hermon, which is one of the tallest in the area, is... 16 or less-ish. Let me, let me get look into that and let you know. Yeah, now that's one. If I could, um, let me go back here for just a second. Um, I want to show you that mountain because as you look at, see this white spot up here? Let me highlight that up here. This would be, if I remember correctly, Mount Hermon. So northeast of the Sea of Galilee. There you go. You can see, um, you can see the distinction there of the height of Mount Hermon there in the in the top to the Sea of Galilee. So there's this, 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 this you know, it is tall compared to the surrounding, but they still are mounts, if you will, or small mountains. And then you see a definite grade down to the Sea of Galilee. Right? So it's kind of in a um, in a bowl, as it were, you can see that. So when they say, well, where's the Sermon on the Mount? Well, it would be very easy for it to be all along in there, okay? So we have to kind of try to judge from the surrounding context of where, what, where was he at, what was he doing? Then it mentions the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, maybe it was near that area there. <clears throat> but anyway, so just a quick look um, at uh, the topography there. Why were, mentioned, why were mountains mentioned a lot? Well, in a practical way, because um, there was a lot there. Now, 
Flip side of the coin, you say, well, oh, I see, there's no significance to it. Well, who chose that land to be the promised land? Well, God did. And who designed it to have mountains? Well, God did. So, yes, there's a significance to it. So there's, there's, a, there's a balance to it, both sides. Um, but anyway, I wanted to show you that topography, and I can maybe show you some more uh, in the future. First mention of a mountain in Scripture is uh, Genesis chapter 7. Genesis chapter 7 and verse 20. Anybody know what the context of Genesis chapter 7 is? What's that? Good. The flood. Okay. Genesis chapter 7 and verse number 20. Genesis 7 verse 20. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail and the mountains were covered. Okay. Now, real quick um, logical analysis of this. Um, The mountains were covered. If the mountains were covered, could it be a local flood? No. What do you know about water? Right, okay? So if it covers a mountain, it doesn't like go to the peak and then just rise above one side of the mountain. It can't. It keeps flowing over the mountain. So for it to cover the mountains, it had to cover the earth. Okay, so in the first mention of a mountain in Scripture, it's an indicator of, the, uh, of a confirmation of the worldwide flood. It, it, was, it was like an eyewitness observation here of the extent of this flood. And it, it, it extended, it covered, it says, the mountains. Interesting, um, as a first mention of mountains there. Later, though, as we read through the... Um, through the Pentateuch there, you'll see that, um, remember, Lot went down to Sodom and uh, was corrupted there, finally delivered by an angel, and he was told to flee to the mountain. Uh, later, when Jacob had deceived his father, he fled, uh, well, he went to Laban, worked for Laban, you know, obtained two wives and a bunch of kids in the process, and now he's fleeing Laban, and he's fleeing toward a mountain, Okay, toward Mount Gilead. Uh, Esau, it says, says, dwelt in Mount Seir. Uh, so these are some mountains that are mentioned along the way. Now, I, in the next couple few weeks, want to highlight, showcase a few specific mountains for you. And today, um, I want to tell you what's probably, I, I, it was hard as I study, began to study these and say, which is my favorite? Okay, which is my favorite? Like, which is your favorite Bible verse? Uh, which is, uh, which is your favorite mountain. So I'm not going to ask you yet. Uh, maybe we'll wait till after the study. Then you can tell me what your favorite mountain is. But mine uh, is, uh, I guess at this moment anyway, uh, is very special. I like this. It seems to be a favorite. And I named a daughter uh, after this. And that is the Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah. Look in Genesis chapter number 2. I want to show you this mountain uh, has significance through several generations, okay? Uh, We'll look later, say, at Mount Nebo or uh, Mount Pisgah, and you see maybe a single reference to that or or a single event happening there. Not so with Mount Moriah. In Genesis chapter number 2, or excuse me, um, uh, that's not right. That's Genesis chapter 20, I believe. Genesis 20, or is it 22? 22. Okay, thank you. So Genesis 22, 
And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. So in that context, it seems to indicate that Moriah is a land with multiple mountains. And so uh, verse, the following verses show how Abram obeyed. He rose up and, uh, and drew nigh there. The third day Abraham lifted up his eyes, saw the place afar off. And, uh, and so he said, told his servants that I and the lad will go and worship and we will return again unto you. That was, of course, significant uh, because Abram's faith, Abraham's faith was that um, I will receive Isaac back again, uh, though I sacrifice him to the Lord. We see that beautiful picture as they're uh, ascending, and, uh, and Isaac, who is not a little boy at this point, interestingly, uh, says, uh, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, verse 8, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. This, this uh, story is so fascinating. Um, on multiple levels, but one of them is the respect of Isaac to Abraham. Because obviously when they got up there um, and he you know, lays out, the, he builds the altar and he lays out the wood and then he tells Isaac, you know, get on the altar. We don't read of any, um, any, what? You can't tell me to do this. What are you doing? You're crazy. I'm not following you, you old man. He's not doing any of that. Uh, we see that Isaac, we don't see you know, Abraham, Abraham wrestle Isaac to the ground and tie him up and wriggle him onto the altar. No, it doesn't say any of that, and I don't believe that happened. Um, but Isaac ends up laying on the altar there, and maybe he's even with his eyes open, he's watching his dad prepare to kill him. Okay? You say, well, that must be totally confusing for him. He doesn't know what's going on. This is a traumatic event. Or... Had Abraham been such a solid man of faith that he had communicated God's promise to them through him and even, um, I mean, I don't know. We don't know what Isaac exactly knew, uh, but certainly he knew that his dad was a man of faith and to some degree followed in his dad's footsteps. So it is a fascinating story as he is uh, preparing to offer his son. And, uh, and then God, of course, says, Abraham, Abraham, don't do that. I see that you're willing, you're faithful, um, and then there's a ram caught in a thicket. And do you remember what, <coughs> what Abraham calls that place? Remember? I'm looking here to see if I can find the verse. Um, thank you. That's right. Jehovah Jireh. Okay? We say that the Lord provides. It's even more, I think, literally the Lord sees. But we say um, we carry that concept into English of seeing to providing when we say, um, if I said, Jerry, see to it that uh, this is done, okay? What do we mean by see to it? We mean provide for it, make sure that gets done. So Jehovah Jireh, we typically pull over uh, to say that the Lord provides. The Lord does see and he does provide. He saw what went on there and he did provide the ram. And so 
there's the, 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 the place, the Mount Moriah, where Abram offered or was willing to offer his son Isaac, and yet God provided, if you will, himself a lamb or a ram there. Um, but now generations later, if you turn over to 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles, and chapter 21, 1 Chronicles 21, First Chronicles 21 says, And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. <clears throat> now, whether they numbered all of them or numbered the military, in another passage it gives the actual military number. <laughs> um, but it's interesting that, again, we don't, the immediate read, we're like, oh, a census. Yeah, we do that all the time. But there was something wrong about this. And even Joab, as as self-serving and as carnal a man as Joab was, even Joab knew this was wrong. Oh, Lord, or, you know, King David, don't, don't do this. You know, may the Lord bless and multiply us, but don't do this. And yet David's word prevailed against Joab, and so they went out and began to number, uh, uh, number the people. And so it says, verse 5 of First Chronicles 21, And Joab gave the sum of the number of the people unto David, and all they of Israel um, were a thousand thousand and a hundred thousand men that drew sword. Wow, a thousand thousand, that'd be a million, and a hundred thousand men that drew sword. 1.1 million standing army. And Judah was 403 score and 10,000 men that drew sword. But Levi and Benjamin counted he not among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. He didn't even count all the people. And God was displeased with this thing, therefore he smote Israel. And David, having realized uh, his sin, said, uh, said, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing, but now I beseech thee, do away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. And in possibly a singular instance in Scripture, God sends Gad to David with three options. I'll let you choose the punishment for this sin. And so, choose thee, verse 12, either three years' famine or three months to be destroyed before thy foes while that the sword of thine enemies overtaketh thee or else three days the sword of the Lord, even the pestilence in the land and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the coasts of Israel. Hmm. What would you choose uh, if you had... Three years of famine, or three months of your enemies overtaking you, or three days of pestilence and the angel of the Lord uh, wreaking havoc there. But um, so, so he said, um, uh, now therefore advise, no, okay, advise thyself what word I shall bring again to him that sent me. Think about it, David. What do you choose? And David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. Let me fall now into the hand of the Lord, for very great are his mercies, but let me not fall into the hand of man. Good answer. Good answer. If I had to fall into the the hand of unmerciful enemy armies, no, I'd rather fall into the hand of God who I know is merciful. There could be some respite there. And so the Lord sent pestilence, verse 14, upon Israel, and there fell of Israel 70,000 men. 
Now, again, these stories are just fascinating because as you, as you continue to read, it says, God sent an angel unto Jerusalem to destroy it. And as he was destroying, the Lord beheld and repented him of the evil. And by the way, that doesn't mean in the same, con- the same way of a New Testament repent, okay? Um, the, the Old Testament concept of repent is not that God changed his mind, okay? Because there is no change in God. God does not change. And, uh, and I can give a fuller explanation some other time, but uh, that's not, it's not saying God said, ah, no, never mind, don't do that. Um, but he repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed, it is enough, stay now thine hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Now, it's going to go and give us some more details, and I wonder if this overlaid uh, what was going on. It's telling us about the angel that destroyed, But it says, verse 16, And David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord stand between the earth and the heaven, having a drawn sword in the hand stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders of Israel, who were clothed in sackcloth and sackcloth, fell upon their faces. And David said unto God, Is it not I that commanded the people to be numbered? Even I it is that have sinned and done evil indeed. But as for these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, O Lord my God, be on me and on my father's house, but not on thy people, that they should be plagued. Then the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and set up an altar uh, unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Ornan the Jebusite. Now, um, um, apparently, let's see here. Yeah, I, I had added this, but apparently it, did, it was after I printed. Um, David, when he first became king uh, of, remember he, when he first came to power, he was only over a part of the country. And Saul's son, Ishbosheth, was still this weak ruler over the other part. And so finally, after so many years, they came to David and said, David, we want you to be king over everything, Okay. And so seven years he was in Hebron, and the remainder of his 40, he was in Jerusalem. But he didn't just march from Hebron over to a well-established capital city of of Jerusalem. It still belonged to the Jebusites. It still belonged to to the heathen. And they basically said, if you want it, come up and get it. You're going to have to kill whatever, whatever. And so David tore into there and, uh, and conquered it and said, this is the city of David, and that became the capital city. Okay, so when he first became king, they conquered what is now Jerusalem uh, and became the city of David. Now, it's interesting to realize that in some way, because now, now we're talking well into David's reign, there's a threshing floor of Ornan, or Arana in a different um, parallel passage, the Jebusite. But he acknowledged David as the king, was a humble man. David said, I want to buy this threshing floor of you. King, take it, use it. I'll give my oxen to be the sacrifice. You know, he was, he was giving. So you might say he was a proselyte, but I just find it interesting if you kind of put the pieces together that though he conquered the city, he at least let Ornan keep his property um, and own it. Okay, I just, I just find that interesting. So that later in his reign, he actually comes to Ornan to buy it from him. Even though he'd conquered the city, he was going to buy it from Ornan. 
And uh, Ornan, of course, has this little discussion with King David. No, you take it, you know. And David says, um, around, <laughs> excuse me, in verse 23, in fact, Ornan said unto David, Take it to thee, and let my lord the king do that which is good in his eyes. Lo, I give thee the oxen also for burnt offerings, and, and the threshing instruments for wood, and the wheat for the meat offering. I give it all. You take everything, king, if you want it. Wow, what a heart. And King David said to Ornan, Nay, but I will verily buy it for the full price. For I will not take that which is thine for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings without cost. Okay, so David gave to Ornan for the place 600 shekels of gold by weight. David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called upon the Lord, and he answered him from heaven by fire upon the altar of burnt offering. And the Lord commanded the angel... And he put up his sword into the sheath thereof. Wow, what a picture. At one point, uh, whether it's in this passage or in the uh, parallel, it tells us that actually Ornan and his sons saw the angel. So it wasn't like this special, secretive, David could see the angel but nobody else. It apparently was a visible angel moving through Jerusalem to destroy. Wow. And Ornan and his sons saw it and were hiding themselves. And then here comes the king and Ornan comes out and he offers him everything. David says, no, I'll buy it at full price. And so he offers the sacrifice at the instruction of the Lord. And the angel puts his sword away. Wow, what a picture. You say, well, what's the significance uh, of that? Well, look at Second Chronicles. <coughs> Second Chronicles. Chapter 3, 2 Chronicles, chapter 3, and verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord. What do we call that? The temple, right. So now Solomon's building the temple, the house of the Lord, at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared unto David his father in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Click, 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 click. Do you see all what's happening here? Okay. In this place where David had offered the sacrifice, this is Jerusalem. This is where the temple is being built. And, uh, and then uh, look at Psalm 48. Psalm 48. Make another connection for you. Psalm 48 and verses 1 and 2. Psalm 48, verses 1 and 2. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of his holiness. Beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion, on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. What's he talking about? Okay? So, so when you put it together, Mount Moriah, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, are all essentially the same place. Now, to take it one other, he calls Zion the city of our God, the mountain of his holiness, the city of the great king. Um, if you think about... Now, years later, we move into the New Testament. 
And Jesus is crucified. Okay, he's, he's, he's tried between Pilate and Herod and Pilate. And where does this take place? In Jerusalem. But he's crucified outside the city walls. But I would say still on the mount, okay, in a place called Golgotha or Calvary, very likely still there in the Mount Moriah. Very significant mountain. So you think about all the way back to Abraham. Abraham offering, willing to offer Isaac. God provides himself a lamb. Then comes the days of judgment over in David's time. When God is judging and just judgment is coming and people are dying until he makes a sacrifice and the angel puts away his sword. And then you see where Solomon builds the temple, a beautiful, majestic place for worship, until one day the Messiah himself comes, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, God providing himself a lamb for the just penalty of sin, and there he is offered. Wow. So you see on Mount Moriah, you see um, worship. Sacrifice, restitution, you know, in, in David's day, forgiveness. That mountain is so significant, and it's a real place. This isn't some Greek mythology of a mount called Moriah. This is a real place where real people in multiple generations, and it's so significant, you, you, know, you know that God intended that significance, Okay? that Abraham is here, David is here, Solomon is here, Jesus is here. But I hope that begins to give you some sense of a connection between those. Um, now, I could say, oh, what about the New Jerusalem? Well, uh, that is neat, but the New Jerusalem is going to be on the New Earth, right? Um, but it's still named after, if you will, uh, after the Jerusalem, which was on Mount Zion, which is on Mount Moriah. But uh, anyway, that's, that's the only one I'm going to cover today. We'll move on to another mountain or two uh, in, in the following weeks, Lord willing. But uh, anyway, Mount Moriah, okay, Mount Zion, um, could say in some ways Mount Calvary, right? Um, the place of the threshing floor, of the temple, of Jerusalem, uh, of the crucifixion. Right here, Mount Moriah. And so you see, and this is why this is why we named her this, um, that her name is Moriah Hope. Because on Moriah, there's hope. And uh, so it brings together those two. God has done a lot through what he's done on Mount Moriah.